you'd be amazed how many great things can happen even with a very small audience online. Hey friend, it's David Nabinski here in Brooklyn, here at the Portfolio Career Podcast to help you take ownership of your portfolio career and design the life that you want to live. Today's conversation is with Stu Fortier. Stu is the co-founder of Foster, a community for writers. This is another special live podcast recording social event held in Brooklyn. In addition to me interviewing and talking with Stu for 20 to 25 minutes, you also hear audience Q&A with a few questions, uh, which really makes it a real dynamic conversation and an overall experience that I hope you really like. In this episode, you'll learn about how writing online and creating a newsletter changed Stu's life, a story about bartering and connecting with others using the internet called Rice Mountain, and what Stu learned from it, how he co-founded Foster, the community for writers, um, and how Foster has grown and developed a new product over time. So if you are interested in creating content, building a creator economy startup, newsletters, and more, this episode is definitely for you. As always, this episode with timestamp notes is available on my website, PortfolioCareerPodcast.com. There, you can subscribe to my newsletter called One Email Away, which has the best insights from the podcast and friend source job opportunities. So excited for you to build and grow your portfolio career. Here we go, Stu. Welcome, Stu. Thank you for hosting. I think I'm speaking into the mic. Yes, you are. And before we get started, though, I have a present for you. Uh, <laughs> Some rice. Um, the same brand, too. Oh, my God. Is it really? Wow. It is. Cool. Uh, that's pretty sweet. Um, so tell us about uh, what rice and a grain of rice means to you and how it maybe means something about writing. Uh, when I listened to your conversation with Chris, who was here, and you opened with a very specific date, I was like, oh, shit, what is David going to like stump me with? when I get there. I know he's going to have some amazing opener planned and I never in a million years would have come off with that. That's so brilliant. So uh, one weekend, this was two years ago now, I think, my now wife was out of town for the weekend. I was left to my own devices with our pit bull and myself in the apartment for the weekend. I had no plans and so I had time for my mind uh, to wander. Uh, for as long as I can remember, I've always been just fascinated by this idea of like the internet as this new layer that drives all human communication, like literally for all of human history to tell somebody five miles away what was going on. You had to like get on a horse and like go over and tell them. Uh, now extrapolate that over the size of the globe and like communication has traditionally been very slow moving, high friction, expensive, and like society has progressed at that rate. Now with the internet, obviously that's just fundamentally that paradigm on which society has been built is now changed. So like what the hell happens when anybody can communicate with each other on the internet immediately, anywhere on the globe in real time. So that is one thought that is always just joggling around in my mind. I'm like what are the implications? How does that play out? The week before my wife left, I'd heard this story of this guy who had traded in the, I think it was the late nineties or early two thousands. He had traded a red paperclip up to a house and if you've, you've probably seen like the TikTok versions of this now, but it's like, yeah, it's a trade up challenge. You get a, you know, small item and you trade all the way up to something much bigger. And I was like, all right, so this guy did that in like the early, early days of the internet. It wasn't really mature yet. Like 
what could you do now that the internet is mature? What would be way crazier than a paperclip trading up all the way to a house? I was like, two things have to happen. One is you have to start smaller. So you got to go smaller than a paperclip. That's one side of the spectrum. And then you got to go bigger than a house. That would be like the wildest outcome. So I was like, all right. I started looking around the apartment. I was like, what's an item I could start to use? Uh, I could start with, and then I'm going to go to my newsletter this weekend. I'm going to email my list and say, hey, I'm like bored. I want to trade this thing up to a slightly bigger thing. Like, does anyone want to make an offer? And so I rummaged around uh, the pantry and found this exact brand of uh, jasmine rice. And I was like, that's it. Like, I'm going to start with a bag of rice. And then I was like, wait a fucking second. I'm going to start with a grain of rice. So I pulled out a single grain of rice. I snapped a photo. I wrote an email to my email list, which had like, you know, three or 400 readers, mostly people I knew. Drafted this email up and I sent it out the next day that said like, yo, I want to trade this grain of rice for something that you have that's slightly larger than a grain of rice. And then I want to trade that item for something that's slightly larger than that. And I want to continue to repeat this until I have a mountain. I want to like trade someone all the way up to a literal like, I looked up the legal definition of like a mountain. It's like a 2,000 foot. Uh, <laughs> it starts at ground level and it's like 2,000 feet above sea level. That's a mountain. You can get one in Kentucky for like 150 grand. They're, you'd be shocked. Um, it's like, all right, so that's my goal. Like I'm going to do this. Send out the email and sure enough, right away, I get all these ridiculous offers. Like, you know, I'll trade you a collection of books. I'll trade you like this old tennis racket. Um, the trade I made was with a guy, Drew Riley, who runs this newsletter where he sells paid research reports. And he's like, all right, I'm going to trade you a paid research report, typically 20 bucks. You send me the grain of rice. I'll send you this link. And then you can trade that. It's like, all right, done. Make the trade. Next week, send it out to my email list. Hey, I have this paid report. Who wants to trade me something for this $20 paid report on like micro SaaS or whatever it was? And like someone replied and was like, I got like $50 of used books I'll give you. It's like, fabulous. I'll cover shipping. Like, let's do this. Uh, trade that for $50 worth of books, all these random things. The books are actually awesome. There's like some really weird old historical books. Send that to my email list the next week. And someone's like, I'll trade you these like dinosaur bones that I have that are like 500 million years old. It's like a, you know, Tyrannosaurus Rex, like tooth or something. It's like done. Make that trade. Have like this fossils now being mailed to my home. Like, all right, have these fossils. Like what, what am I going to do with this? put that to my list the next week and like it starts to pick up some momentum. I start to tweet about it, get some more attention. I start to get more inbound offers. Uh, the next item, I think the next item I got was one of my readers was a woods worker. He's like a carpenter and he's like, I'll make a custom table. And he's, but he's like a carpenter who loves like archeology. span And I was like, you are my friend today. Like this is an amazing Venn diagram given my needs in this situation. So he's like, I will make a custom coffee table for like one of your readers, if you send me those fossils, it's like done. Same thing. Rinse and repeat. Go to the email list. All right. I have, I now have a custom coffee table. Who wants a custom coffee table? And actually, I wonder if anyone in this room knows him. Uh, this guy, Salim, he runs a company called Sound. It's like Sound T. You'll probably see them. You'll notice them in the next bodega you go into. He had just moved to a new apartment. And he's like, I want a new coffee table for my new place. Um, I'll trade you a pallet of sound teas like this 5,000 sparkling teas like a mat it's like in a warehouse somewhere in New York and you're about to see where the story ends uh, I still have this palette of fucking sound teas because COVID happened and like no live events are happening and like I don't know what to do with this like 
six thousand dollars worth of raw inventory. Um, six thousand so dollars. It's something like that. Yeah, it's like a large dollar value, massive palette of sparkling teas. So this is the item that I'm now stuck on, but it started with a grain of rice. Wow. <laughs> and, and so, what what do you think that means? Like, do you think that what do you think that means about um, the internet about you know asking for help of how a grain of rice turned into you know six thousand dollars worth of stuff. What do you, what what other kind of takeaways have you gotten from that? Totally. My biggest takeaway that okay, first of all, my biggest takeaway is it requires effort to continue the trades. I, oh, I forgot all these other wild stories. But um, the literally just how much time you're willing to put into it will directly correlate with like how many trades you're generating. So I just literally got like busy with work and like stop being able to justify my time of like trying to trade a large palette of sparkling tea as like a wise mature way to spend my hours. I was like, I need to like build foster my company, not do this shit. Uh, so I got really lazy, but um, that was one just pragmatic takeaway for anyone who feels inspired to do this after the fact, just free up some time on your calendar because it takes a little while. Uh, just as a quick side note, just with the sparkling tea, I had a few offers one dude was friends with Anthony Scaramucci, like the Mooch, like Trump's advisor. It was like the Mooch's 60th birthday. I fucking kid you not. Some dude cold emails me and is like, hey, I'm buddies with Anthony Scaramucci and like it's his birthday this weekend and I want to send him these teas and like for his birthday, if I'm going to text him now, if he accepts, I'll trade you. It was like so weird, but it was like, I'll trade you these like three premium domains. It was like, rockclimbing.com and like, it was like really weird but it would have been a good trade um <laughs> i was like okay what but this is great like that sounds good he texts the mooch or whatever but like obviously gets no response this guy's like a large public figure who does not want six thousand t's like delivered to his home so it died on the vine there or whatever but to me that was this like just weird moment of like okay it's gotten out of just my little circle. This thing, people are now talking about Rice Mountain is what the challenge is now called. Um, people are sharing it with other folks. I'm getting inbound you know, offers. Most of them weren't worth the trade or whatever. But I was like, it's, it is, there is clearly a sense of momentum and it is rippling out very quickly. And I r literally was only promoting it through my email list, which had a few hundred people at the time, and my Twitter, which wasn't more than a thousand or two uh, throughout all of this. So like, that was very surprising to me with my small audience. The Red Paperclip guy, you know, was on radio and television right off the bat. Even just with a very niche newsletter and Twitter, I was starting to generate kind of this momentum and uh, uh, these offers. But then the, the, this other thought, though, is that I noticed with this trade, this probably goes beyond just the internet point, but like people, there's so many intangible things you can trade on. People want to be a part of this story. And so they'll make a trade that doesn't make economic sense. They're, it's a net loss I'm gaining. But it's just hilarious to be a part of this trade. I'll tra yeah, I'll trade you. These books probably worth 50 bucks. I'm getting some worth 20, but like, this is a fun story, so I'll do it. Um, there's selling attention. I, uh, sound, the guy who traded the waters, I was like, dude, I'm just going to plug your company until this thing trades. And like, that's free. That's earned media. Like, congrats. Um, so great for him. Like, I'm now selling and trading on attention. So that was another surprising learning is like, there's these intangibles, this intangible value that you can, uh, yeah, that still has you know, staying power. Yeah. And, and so you mentioned that, um, that you didn't have a large audience then, and then uh, like the story started to spread and stuff. But 
talk to us a little bit about how like your tweeting and newsletter and stuff has really started to spread in the last couple of years um, for people that are just getting started with with Twitter um, or you know publishing a newsletter. How do you view like publishing and, and tweeting and creating content as like a way that's uh, talk to us a little bit about like how it's been beneficial for you and, and why you think uh, like your ideas have been able to spread? Yeah, this is like um, something that I'm reluctant to take any generalized conclusions from my own experience because I've now worked with writers across a very wide spectrum of, you know, just Twitter and Substack and whatever. And I've learned there's no formula to doing this. There's like just this wide array of ways that people succeed, get their message out into the world, build an audience, whatever your kind of goals are. So I'm always reluctant to extrapolate my own experience. But for me, the decision came down to like, uh, I'm going to make a decision to start writing with the intent of growing an audience. I'm, I may not write to grow an audience. I, I journal to like clarify my thinking. I write to just figure out, to calm the hell down and figure out what's going on. Uh, but when I publish, I publish to be read. I, I don't, there's a lot of folks that say like, you know, if I wrote this book and it changed one person's life, like, God damn it, that'd be worth my time. Like my perspective is if I write a book and one person finds it life changing, I have failed massively at marketing. Like I, I want a lot of people to read my stuff. If what I'm sharing, I think is valuable. I think it's hopefully valuable to more than one person. Um, so I really, uh, maybe three or four years ago now made the decision where like, I'm going to invest my time in figuring out how to actually get people to read what I'm writing and figure out what skill sets that requires. We can go into that a little bit, but that yeah, was, let's get, let's for me, it was like a, yeah, before and after moment. Uh, talk to us more about that moment. And yeah, yeah. The, the, the simple way of breaking it down is like, if there's so many skills beyond just writing that are subtle, but accumulate to be a really powerful combination. And so as one example, um, and you can take all these things way too far, but I think they're all useful to have a grounding in. For example, a discipline like copywriting is actually unbelievably useful, far beyond just being a salesperson trying to get a conversion page to convert better. Um, copywriting, as one example, is all about writing that drives action. It's about getting into the mind of someone and figuring out what emotional triggers we all have to get us to take an action. And that action can be, you know, buy my crappy supplements and like whatever, like obviously these skills can be misused and used for certain ends, uh, but it can also be just making you feel something, really speaking to the essence of what people care about. And if you can crack that, that's what gets people to take action. You don't like one of my favorite studies is like, I forget what his name was or whatever, but the guy who there was a construction accident on a, they were constructing a, a railway or something. And like a railroad spike, like went into this dude's head. He survived, but it like damaged some part of his brain or whatever. And he felt no emotion. He was just very like neutral. He was like able to speak, still able to communicate. He just felt, he felt nothing. And his biggest challenge in life is that he could not make decisions and take action. He had like no emotional center to drive him to action. So like, for me, emotions and decision-making are fundamentally related. I think it's bullshit when people like take, take the emotion out of a decision. I think it's the complete opposite. I think the only way we ever decide anything is by having an emotion. Um, so I think like these are the sorts of things that are very helpful to have a grounding in that can kind of like build your way up to writing things that start to get a bit more reach that speak to people that really like tap into 
what people care about. Otherwise, for me, what I had been doing two years prior with my email, with my blog, no, like it did not grow for two years. Like fucking no one read it. My grandma unsubscribed. Like it was brutal. Um, <laughs> I was I was truly just writing for me. Like I was literally just writing for me. And I think that's like if you're very gifted, that can work. Like you write for yourself, but you're so talented that it just it's too good to ignore. But I, I, I tragically was not that sort of savant. Like I had to learn how the hell to like communicate clearly and write well. Um, so I got out of my own head and was like, maybe what's interesting to me is like not clear to other people. And like, let me think about how a reader would interpret this. I started to invest in these other uh, skills. So copywriting is one of the skills. Is there other yep. skills? Yeah. Copywriting is one of the skills. Another skill, and we were talking about it a bit earlier, just alluded to it, is um, different types of, there are ways to write that are very distinct to the medium in which you are writing. So how you write a book is very different than how you write a tweet, as I'm sure we all are extremely familiar with. Uh, what works on Twitter, and it's not only just the bad stuff, like the really inflammatory stuff, um, but like literally what you do with 280 characters in those uh, confines um, is very different than what you do with 500 pages where you can really go deep on something or an essay or an academic paper. And whatever mediums you choose to operate in is a very critical decision. You have to, I think, really understand what works in that medium to use it effectively. There's a lot of people who are big on one platform, like maybe you're a, a book, an amazing book author, but their Twitter game fucking blows. It's like they use hashtags. It's like, it's like the worst thing. And so you have this very talented and gifted writer with amazing ideas in their books, utterly failing to get in front of an audience on something like Twitter because they're not thinking like the medium uh, requires. Same thing with newsletters and emails and Substack. Uh, what you do to make a great Substack is different than what you do to make a great Twitter account. That's another like question you have to ask yourself. It's like, what is this medium great for? Twitter's great for punchy, short ideas. Substack's great for longer, richer ideas. Book writing's great if I've really mastered something. Um, that's another one. And then from going from a couple hundred Twitter followers to now where you are now, were you were you intentional about the topics you wanted to write about or, or yeah, do you think that there's anything there in terms of if people wanted to like grow their Twitter account or their newsletter that they needed to like kind of stick to a certain lane or certain topics? There's definitely the, the Ira glass quote that I'll butcher that a lot of folks have probably heard about like this notion of the gap in creative work. You start off with great tastes, you start off knowing what good art is and then like you go to make something of your own and like, there is a true gap between what you aspire to do and like what's in front of you. And it's very humbling and like honestly embarrassing. You're like, wow, holy shit. I suck. <laughs> um, but, but if you can just kind of accept that that's like actually part of the process in the same way that being sore after workout is part of the process. And like, it's just a neutral thing that everyone goes through. Um, I think you keep showing up and you keep like doing the work and you just stay motivated when it's like the results are not backing up your effort. Uh, just yet. Um, and so when it comes to like picking topics to write about, which is really tough, I, at least for me, and I noticed this happened with a lot of other people that tends to be very emergent in that if you keep showing up and doing the work and just like actually showing up and writing something, you have a body of work to look back on and notice patterns. It'd be like, interesting. I, if you come at it with a highly strategic lens, what I should be writing about, this is my lane. Here's my strategy. I'm going to be the blank person. Oh man, it just fucking kills. I think it kills the joy unless you've already put in that work. Um, so I'm a big fan of like, all right, just commit to some regular showing up for six months, see what emerges. And then like, then take kind of a stock of like what you might want to do next. 
otherwise it becomes very easy to just like i don't know kill the joy a little bit just like remove the unique magic or approach you're going to have by being overly constrained in the beginning um and so that's for me it's like step one write a million words step two will reveal itself uh before you do that okay and then uh so that's your personal writing and then you mentioned a little bit about foster uh the company you co-founded talk to us a little bit about like that transition and how you kind of started the company yeah like the origin of foster fosters basically we've built a magic button inside google docs that any writer can tap and professional editors appear directly in your work and like give you super high quality feedback so it's a really awesome human powered way to get uh, high quality input on your writing it started off a little bit different it started off as a community where every writer edits each other's work it just evolved into this like product experience basically like the same moment i decided to be more intentional about my own writing and like growing an audience a friend of mine and former co-founder on another project, Dan Hunt, came to me and was like, I want to start something in a space I'm more passionate about. I wasn't digging what I was doing at the time. And we just kind of converged on writing as a shared interest. He was very passionate about community building. Um, and I was like, okay, if we did something, he's like, we should start a writer community. When I thought of writer community, I thought of like 10 people who have never sold a screenplay all telling each other how to tell, sell a screenplay. I've had like this really bad taste in my mouth of like, what a writing community was. Um, it's like blind leading the blind type situation. But uh, I was like, you know, this could be great, but I think we have to have like a really clear utility for the community. There has to be like a thing, a ritual, like a core utility that we slot into that helps writers, that makes you keep coming back, where we can actually, like all of us are qualified to give us the value we need to receive. Um, and at the time, I had just started asking my friends for feedback on my own writing, which was this hugely transformational experience, uh, starting to get constructive feedback on my work. And I was like, dude, we should just make that the core ritual of the community. You join Foster as a writer. You kind of commit to reciprocating and giving feedback on other people's writing. You share work of your own. Um, and that was kind of the origin of like how we started to build Foster, similar to like Rice Mountain. I literally, we, we launched Foster because I put a little footer PS in my newsletter that was like, Hey, I'm going to start a Slack group with writers. If that's you, like, let me know. Like 20 people were like, yes, I'd love to join. And like, we had our first 20 customers. It was like incredible. Um, so launch this community, get it going, get this like peer feedback thing working. And at that point kind of became meta. Cause I was like, okay, I need to speak to writers in my writing. I'm not qualified to do that in a way because I still feel very early on this journey. And so one thing I did, I think a lot, if anyone else in this bucket with whatever you do, one thing I did was it was almost like the Tim Ferriss strategy. This is like literally what he did to get famous. He's like, all right, I'm not really the expert in a lot of these things, but I can just borrow credibility by interviewing awesome people in these various fields. His whole thing's obviously about like whatever performance or like whatever, um, 80, 20 leverage. Like he's just like the life hack guy. Uh, but what he did was like build this brand around cultivating the experts in various fields and extracting their knowledge. I was like, I have no credibility whatsoever in writing. I'm learning these things. I want to learn alongside the people I think we want to attract to foster. Um, so let me just start interviewing writers who I really respect and think are interesting. And then sharing that interview, or sharing my own little takeaways, just creating content that puts the spotlight on them with me as just kind of like the, the seeker, if you will. And that was just huge for uh, really our first year of growth was like me putting out that content other writers found it just as helpful as I did. And that, you know, naturally led to them joining Foster. Yeah. Raise of hands. Uh, how many people here know about Foster? Cool. Cool. I just love it. Yeah. 
Um, and okay, so then it was Slack community, paid Slack community, then the product. Talk maybe talk about about that kind of transition of like, all right, this community, this product, this, and this company is going. Now we need to formalize or create a new product or enhance the experience uh, for the people that are like community builders here that are, you know, are, have built a community and maybe want to create more utility or products for their community. So I think, I think one of the lessons I've learned the hard way launching tech companies, building products is like, um, it can be so tempting to want to jump straight to the grand vision, build the whole thing that you want to see uh, exist in the world. And, um, what no one tells you is that like, you know, turns out building the iPhone is like uh, pretty hard. Um, and like is an enormous like technical challenge to do. And every moment that you're spending solving like engineering problems or technical problems, you are not spent. Typically you're not spending solving actual customer problems. And we just exist in this world in which you can abstract away so much work to build, uh, the first iteration of almost any idea. And so for us, like, okay, we want to create this amazing collaborative experience where writers come in and share their writing and, you know, uh, help other, help support other writers. But we just started as like, let's just do a Slack group that has 90% of this functionality. We created a literal channel called drafts. The writers in Foster just posted a pasted links to their Google docs with sharing permissions turned on. Other writers who were in Foster could jump into those docs and contribute. Um, and like that was Foster for the first like six to eight months. Um, straight up took us literally 45 seconds to build that. Um, and we grew that to hundreds of writers when we had hundreds of writers posting drafts into this one channel. It was like, this is obviously like overwhelming and like totally chaotic. Um, we probably need to build a basic feed that helps basically filter these drafts by what your actual interests are, help you connect with writers you really enjoy. Let's just find a mechanism to like filter the noise. And we built this very simple web app that's where we hired our first engineer and just built this like basic product where folks could browse drafts as time went on we needed more complex capabilities around draft matching and we built a full like blown out app and then we realized oh my god like writers live in google docs we should just make it easy for you to submit your work there so you don't have to jump over this app and we built that so it was just this very like one step and solve the problems as they arise not build it all from day one approach um that i do think generalizes to a lot of stuff yeah and were you able to um, uh, utilize like your prior CTO and technical background and stuff? Is that, um, you know, sometimes you like work on something and you're like, ah, this was a waste of time and stuff. But talk to us maybe about like how, you know, prior experiences and stuff have like have helped, you know, kind of where you are now and stuff. Yeah, this was one of the um, challenges with Foster. My first comp for the last like most of my career so far, I've been the founder and CTO of companies. I'm self-taught software developer by trade. I've just built products early on and then ran engineering teams as uh, a product has grown. And it's basically the only job I've had in my, you know, in the first maybe eight years out of college. And by the time Foster was coming around, I was like, I am so done with this job. I'm so sick of like, you know, I can't log in like, well, what are you doing? Like, well, I'm trying to log in from my car play, like in my Toyota. I'm like, that's not where the app's supposed to be used. I was so sick of just like the true grinding work that building software products can be as the engineering lead, as like the head product person. So I told my co-founder, Dan, I was like, 
dude, I'm firing myself from being CTO. Like, I don't want to do that job here. I'm going to do everything else at the startup that I haven't done. In this case, I'm going to do growth. I'm going to create our content. I'm going to find writers. I know our customers. I'll do customer development. I'll do sales. Like, I'm just going to be that person in this relationship. And let's just find, I recruited um, engineers who I'd worked with in the past to come build the product, but they more or less self-managed, worked closely with my co-founder, Dan, who has a very great product mind. Uh, but I fired myself from the job and I was like, that chapter of my career I think is over. I, it's like the force of gravity trying to suck me back in is incredible. But um, I was so done with that job. So I was like, I want to do the stuff I, I want to get good at, not the stuff I've already done. Um, I'm going to focus on content and growth. So yeah, I was like being selfish, I guess. <laughs> well, before we turn it over to uh, audience Q&A, is there anything about you know leveraging the internet to kind of build an audience uh, through writing that you want to talk about? Anything you think we missed there or about... Yeah, building, foster any lessons learned that really like stand out that you want to make sure that we talk about? The only thing that I always just feel compelled to share because it's so easy to forget, at least my own journey, is that you'd be amazed how many great things can happen even with a very small audience online. A lot of influence is kind of almost invisible. When you put something out on Twitter or a blog post or whatever, most people don't respond to it most things you've read, you probably haven't replied and reached out to the author and let them know things that have changed your life. You've probably never told the author. I've never emailed like, you know, Richard Dawkins or something. I've been like the selfish gene. I think I've never. So this is like a pretty rare thing for the person creating something to actually get the data of like what change their work has made. And so I think that applies to every scale of creation, including if you have a hundred people on an email list, if you have 400 Twitter followers or whatever, if you are saying, reasonably interesting things to the right group of people like the internet's getting more efficient with getting that word out um, and you'd be kind of amazed at what you can do even at the very early stages so that's something that always just like really energizes me to think about and i think is hopefully something that encourages more people to participate uh, and do it love that cool all right well um who's got some questions anybody have a question uh and then uh Ben and then Rena and then so so Ben come on up and then I'll hand you the mic so we don't mess this up. Hey Stu. Hey hey. That was great. I really enjoyed all the story, the Rice Mountain stuff. I've definitely got to sign up to the list. Um, so I have a question. You said this interesting line, which was, I think there's every moment where you're solving a technical or engineering challenge is a moment spent not solving a customer challenge, and I wanted to dig into that because. I work in media and my model with how media unlocks value is that you have to start with a technology. So if you take the iPhone, it was the iPhone's advent in 2007 that unlocked people's ability to download podcasts onto their phone. And then with data, that then unlocks the business model. So you have the app stores, et cetera, which then unlocks the content, the podcaster. So in order to create the customers, you had to solve the technical and engineering challenge first. So how do you think about for people who are building products like you in the in the me, in the media internet space, how do you think about balancing your time solving technical and engineering challenges, and then also customer focused challenges? Amazing question. I think the key nuance is uh, why does your product or company exist? What is the value that you're creating? Um, and so, to give a really specific example, so I completely second your analysis of like iPhone, you know, solving technology problems and the iPhone actually unlocks enormous new markets and like actually in a company in the case of like an Apple 
you really are solving customer problems by innovating on technology. I think for mo- or for many, I should say, products that other folks build, um, that's typically not. That's very often not what the value is to your customer. And so, in the really specific like blogging case, as one example, one of the classic pitfalls of like starting your own blog is like having this grand vision of like this really cool UI and this fun typeface. It's going to be like totally me when I do it, and you end up spending like four months customizing a WordPress website when really the value that you're responsible for creating are sharing interesting ideas, sharing original ideas, the words on the page. That's typically the actual 95% of the value you're creating. Screw the clever cursor that looks like a rainbow. Like this is not the value people are coming here for. It's your ideas and it's your words. Um, so that that is to parse that a little bit. That's what I mean. It's more understanding what your business is, what the value factor you're on. Um, and for us with Foster... We don't need to build cutting edge software to work. We need to build a really great network of writers and editors uh, to be valuable. So great question to parse that a little bit. Um, so my question is more tactical. How do you balance running a VC-backed company with your writing? Um, yeah. How do, you, how do you do it? What's your schedule like every day? <laughs> I was about to say, uh, you use the word balance, which could you define that? Um, oh, could I? Oh, yeah. oh sorry. I to... <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I meant that. <laughs> What does your schedule look like? Like, how do you, what do you block out time in your schedule to write? Uh, yeah, what yeah, does totally. that look like? No, to, I'm glad you parsed that because I'm like half joking in that uh, the balance is, no, totally, no, in like I'm truly like the worst example of like how to live a healthy, balanced life. Uh, <laughs> like, like, someone asked me the other day, like, yeah, when was the last time you're like, like did not use your phone for like an entire day or whatever and i'm sure a lot of people fall into this bucket but i was like uh 2014 like i don't remember um so i really struggle with like uh like creating a lifestyle like all the time that goes into writing in the startup gets taken from time spent training for a marathon surfing um and like these other things i'm you know no kids the wife even that is like tough to balance, like making sure I'm there as a partner, but like that's always a struggle. So frankly, it's just like for me, just a ton of hours. Um, But in case it's helpful, the thing that has worked for me in the last year with the writing specifically, I struggle with like keeping a really consistent schedule. I really just have different kind of energy that I bring to each day. And I never quite know like what it's going to be going into it. And so something I've started to do, if you're lucky enough to be able to do it is like, when inspiration strikes, for example, for writing, just drop whatever you thought your plan was for the next hour and like do it, like strike while the iron's hot. Don't wait until 9 p.m. when everything's settling down to do it. Don't wait till the next morning. Just like really go after it because writing, I think specifically writing is always the thing that life threatens to knock away. Um, it's just always the first thing to go. And so for me, I now just have this rule if I really feel called to write, I know I've got to write this email that can wait an hour. I'll make that trade off. But yeah, honestly, it's just like, I just don't like exercise as much as I need to. Like, that's how I found the time. And, but uh, you're taking a vacation next week though, right? I, I'm going <laughs> so fully offline. Yeah. I know, but even that, I had to figure out some of my co-founder. I was like, yeah, I'll need to be online a couple of days, but uh, almost a full vacay. Sweet. Uh, I think, uh, I, I forget. Devin, I think maybe. Did you? Sure. Uh, yeah. 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 So my question is, what is the number one mistake that you notice that writers make that they are most blind to? That's such an awesome question. 
and I can just, oh my God, it's so good. Um, honestly, I, so much in my opinion of the challenges getting started revolve around self-belief. And I think the biggest mistake is that a lot of people don't think they can do it. And I think they can a hundred percent do it. Um, because there's so uh, the symptoms show up as I don't really know what to write about. I'm not sure what I'm going to kind of do with my writing. I don't really know what I'm going towards, but a lot of it's like rooted in like, I don't believe that I can figure it out. And I just think people can figure it out. Um, and so I think for me, it's something a lot of the writers I work with struggle with, but yeah, it's something to do with like self-belief and just being like, no, these people are not smarter than me. Like I can, I can figure it out. So yeah. Um, how did you cultivate that self-belief or is that just something that you've always had and for different hobbies or arenas in your life that you just like channeled into writing or was this something that you had to like really work hard to develop? hundred percent something I had to work hard. I'm very like, I struggle with self-belief like all the time. Um, for writing specifically, the most motivating thing in the world for me is to find something successful that sucks and be like, this person got a book deal. This thing sold a million copies. This book sucks. That gets me so motivated. I won't name names, but I have some writers that are like very successful and I read their stuff. I'm like, this sucks. Who's reading this? Um, and I get so inspired. I'm like, I just have to beat this per as on principle because this is such an abomination. That gets me going. Like, so that's my answer. Find art that has succeeded that you think sucks. Then you'll believe in yourself. I love how you made a very solo activity into a competitive sport. <laughs> well, you should also Absolute. check out, uh, well, like your, I love your, your manifesto says that like writing should be sh social, right? I mean, that's the, that's the, that's another, like you're talking about solo and, but anyways, hundred percent. No, it's very true. Like, right. Like ideas are social. Everything that we've ever thought has been a function of something outside of ourselves. We're speaking in English. Who the, no one here invented English. Someone else invented this. Like, and that's the language we use to communicate all of our ideas. Like, so, you know, we didn't, um, so much of the act of like harnessing and expressing and like capturing and sharing ideas is inherently something that is done at the kind of communal or like the, the human societal level. Um, and so exactly <laughs> David is gesturing to the community in front of us. Um, you know, the act of putting pen to paper, refining words, obviously there's a lot of solitary time you need, but the ideas themselves, um, you are playing your part in a much bigger ecosystem, uh, every time you write. Cool. All right. I think we got time for one last question. Uh, Shri. All right. I mean, this is just out of personal curiosity. When you're going through that bartering exercise and trading up, did it change the way you value things in your personal life? Oh, elaborate a little bit. So like you talked about how people trade things like somebody will trade something for 30 bucks, like for something that's 50 or like even the opposite. <clears throat> Excuse me. Did like after the, going through that exercise, did you reevaluate the way you valued things in your own life, material or not material? Uh, what an incredible question. A hundred percent. Something, something that really clicked for me during the experiment, like along those lines was like many of the first trades were basically me just calling in a, a favor. It was like people who liked my stuff or people who knew me 
just liked me and wanted to make a trade. And I was like, oh, that's obviously kind of like a, this is a fun little experiment that demonstrates this much larger principle of like building up goodwill. And like, we all probably have so much more goodwill to call on than we think. So that was very eye opening. It's like, you can just, it helped me see this longer game of every relationship I have. Not like I'm going to be great to this person so that at some point I'll call on them, but just like, why not just invest for the long term? You're going to build up just great capital that one day could really be helpful for you um, when you need it. So for me, that was like a big unlock because that's very difficult to quantify, but goodwill, when someone does you a favor, they're fundamentally doing something that is not immediately in their tangible self-interest. They're going to pick you up from the airport when they could be working an extra hour or whatever. Um, but they're doing it because of something else, because you've done something for them, because you've created value, you've supported them when they needed it. Um, so yeah, it just made me think a lot about that. I'm like, there's so much value we can unlock uh, that's just trickier to quantify, but you can build up if you just have that view of people. So, Love it. Well, how can people stay in touch and learn more about Foster? And yeah, where would you like to point people to? Oh God, I'm, I'm, I'm always, I don't want the world spending more time on Twitter, but that <laughs> is where I'm most active. It's just me. I'll text it to the group or something with Stu Fortier. Uh, and then my Substack, which I write once a week, uh, is linked in my Twitter profile, but it's just stewfortier.com. Um, and then Foster is just foster.co. If you're actively writing, definitely go to Foster. You can skip my newsletter, skip all my marketing uh, and go straight to the goods. But those are the two places to find me. Amazing. Thank you so much, Stu. Thank you, David. Hey, friend. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode of Portfolio Career Podcast. would love to hear what you learned and what you enjoyed. Um, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, whatever is best for you. And as a reminder, I'm just one email away as well. This episode with Timestamp Notes is available on my website at PortfolioCareerPodcast.com. There you can subscribe to my newsletter called One Email Away, which includes the best insights from the podcast and friend-sourced opportunities. So excited for you to build and grow your portfolio career. Thank you so much.